This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Kaz Trennan here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music all in less than 30 minutes. On this episode, it's singer, songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist and keen collaborator, Kimbra. Since emerging out of Melbourne in the 2010s, the New Zealand artist has carved out an impressive career. She wowed us with the jazz pop of her 2011 debut album, Vows. Backed it up with the textured electro soul of 2014's The Golden Echo. And took us to even deeper emotional spaces on 2018's Primal Heart. There's also her collaborations with the likes of Janelle Monet, Gautier, Foster the People, Skrillex, Matt Bellamy and many more. Not to mention two Grammys and back-to-back arias for Best Female Artist. For this episode of The J-Files, I had a chat with Kimbra from her home in New York. We talked about many of the high points in her career and some of her breakthrough creative moments. We began by talking about some of her earliest musical influences. It's interesting because I think I did take more than I realised from my parents when I think about their music taste. So on my mother's side, there was a lot of singer-songwriters, Carole King, Bread, Cat Stevens. Oh, baby, baby, it's a wild world. It's hard to get by. Then my father liked a lot of like prog rock, like level 42. Genesis. And the Beatles. So that was always my, that was what was the influence from home what I remember most yeah okay and what music did you gravitate towards when you know you could put your own money out for your choice of music right so the first albums I remember buying were Silverchair Diorama and Amy Winehouse Frank you should be stronger I also remember my first guitar teacher um, giving me Stevie Wonder songs to learn. So that began my big love of R&B. So were they ones that you were flogging, listening to, playing the heck out of those albums? Oh my God, totally. Yeah, talking book Stevie Wonder. And of course, you know, this was the era of Destiny's Child. Timbaland, like that was my shit. Like I was on that, that I was on that 
so hard. Christina Aguilera, like that was my shit, you know? I mean, also to give you the full spectrum of what I was listening to, there was Christina on one side. And there was the Mars Volta on the other side and like Glassjaw and Converge and um, the Blood Brothers and you know, Nine Inch Nails and Bjork. And it's like, I had this older friend at school that gave me a mixed CD of all this really heavy music. A Dillinger Escape Plan, like all these bands that I was like, it was so exciting to me. And so what became interesting to me was this fusion of pop with all of its kind of shiny, polished edges and this chaos of, of heavier music that I gravitated toward from the age of like 13, you know, really young. So how did she take that melting pot of influences and channel it into her own art? Here she is talking about an important moment in childhood when it became clear to her that music was going to be an all-encompassing, all-consuming life pursuit. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it was just so on my heart. It was just so clear to me that that's what I wanted to do. Now, whether I thought I could do it, that's a different story. I'm a New Zealander. You know how self-deprecating we are. Um, <laughs> You know, people push you down when you say you're going to be a singer. I mean, it's, I know it's got there's the same culture sometimes in Australia, right? It's like that sort of, you know, don't get too big for your boots. <laughs> um, and I just think, fuck all that, you know. Like what I love about America is the celebration of ambition. Yeah. It's got its problems, but there's a celebration of the extraordinary. I mean, what's my visa? Extraordinary alien, you know. <laughs> people, they want to lift you up. Here, I think you know, in the, in the larger cities, at least. Of course, we're not talking about Kansas, but um, but I did feel it was sort of a calling. You know, it did kind of feel like something that came from beyond, like a sort of like, this is your gift. Now take it and give it away. You know, don't don't keep them demos and you're getting dust in your chest of drawers. You know, give it away. Give it for the world. What were those early attempts at writing and composing music on your own like, Kimbra? Yeah, so I have these memories of my family got a, a boat. Uh, we well, we we owned a boat, but we had friends with a nice lake house, so we got to go stay there on the weekend. You know, just as family friends. And um, my dad would take us out on the boat. He'd be behind the wheel. Mama be do, mom would be doing you know sandwiches, and and I would be sitting on the is it the hull? I don't know the front part of the boat with my legs dangling down, looking out at a fucking volcano I mean you know it was like New Zealand so I'm looking out at a volcano and I just feel melodies start they just begin I could have been seven or eight and they're just flowing out of me they're just I'm just I don't know if they were words I think it's probably just silly gibberish you know but then of course I'd run home and get my cassette player and you know how you, you push down the record and then you rewind play it back and um it wasn't long before I got an eight track which was I think I just borrowed it from the high school music room I think I borrowed it I hope I didn't maybe I didn't even tell anyone I can't really remember but I took it <laughs> one way or another and I began to layer my voice so that was the big turning point right when a vocalist recognizes that they sound completely different when they put one voice on top of another 
<laughs> and pan them left and right. And you go, oh, my God, I sound like Christina Aguilera or, you know, so whoever, or, you know, uh, replicating techniques that I heard on the radio. Um, so then began Settle Down, one of the first songs I wrote on the eight track at uh, about 15, 16. Yeah. Wow. Oh, at 15 or 16. It was a, yeah much earlier when that song came together. Yeah, and it was bare bones. Like it wasn't like all the verses and stuff. It was just, and, and sorry, it was the verses but not the chorus. I didn't have the chorus but I had the whole, you know, the sentiment of um, I want to I settle down, I, I want to be this kind of perfect little wife for you. Um, <laughs> I, I think I just watched that movie The Stepford Wives with Nicole Kidman. So I was just copying copying that idea really, you know. So I just uh, did what I heard and, and um, Settle Down was my kind of, little doo-wop, fun, you know. It was just fun. It was silly. And then, of course, I played it to Francois Titez, and he's like, well, this has got something. I want to settle down. I want to settle down. Won't you settle down with me? Settle down. From those early records and artists she was exposed to as a kid to recognising her creative gifts and the mind-expanding experience of recording and layering her voice. Kimbra was preparing herself to step up as a performer in the public realm. This is when she made the jump from mucking around at school to leaving Hamilton, New Zealand and moving to Melbourne to make her debut album, Vows. I started uploading my shit on MySpace and then, yeah, my first manager heard the MySpace. He flew over to New Zealand to see me play a small little pub and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then, so you know, the move to to Melbourne, you know, wasn't like a challenge for you. You know, you dove straight into the music scene here. What was that like? And and what were you know, who were the people who were gravitating towards you and you to to them? Yeah. Well, I did. I will say, I made a real effort to get out. Um, and I always say that to young people. It's like you can't sit at home and do nothing. You've got to go to jazz bars and go to. And so I did. I, I found a jazz band called Twelve Tone Diamonds, and I discovered a band that was, you know, fronted by Josh Moriarty, who ended up being in Miami Horror, and you know, all those bands, and um, you know, uh, some guys from New Zealand that had moved over that played in a prog band that I loved. And when my manager said, it's time for you to get a band, I said, I want them to be my band. So they were, you know, a local rock band in the area. And I said, I want a real band. I don't want just some session musicians that get called in to play for whoever's in town, you know. I yeah. wanted a real band. Yeah. So so was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. I didn't have any friends, really. So um, but I had an apartment, you know, and I was extremely lucky to be given, you know, this opportunity to, I mean, I'm 17. I've just, I've, I've just left high school. In fact, I didn't even finish high school. I've left high school. I go from doing six subjects and, you know, three cur- extracurricular activities after school, you know, and then, uh, I'm, uh, I'm in Melbourne making a an album with no job but to make an album you know an incredible opportunity I'm being you know I'm being looked after financially in yeah. many ways but a lot of pressure too because you've got someone saying you know we're we're investing in you and it's not free money <laughs> you've got to make it back so you know it's just I don't know I, I feel for that I mean she 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 did have a lot on her shoulders yeah um, 
How did you deal yep. with that and and be able to separate, you know, the art from the worry about money, which is always the, you know, the concern for anybody in a creative pursuit? Yeah, well, I did. I did really struggle with the lack of structure. I mean, I the producer, the the co, you know, I guess. Well, he was the producer. I mean, nowadays I co-produce my records, but really back then I didn't know how to produce, so I was very much in his hands. Um, Francois could only see me like once a week. I just want to make a record, and I'm and I got a lot of songs. I got like hundred songs, and I'm ready to go. I'm you know seventeen, nearly eighteen. You know that feeling where you're just ready to conquer, you know, and he can see me once a week, you know, because he's working on Gautier. He's working on all kinds of things, which, you know, good good on him. He should be. Uh, Who am I? I'm a nobody, you know. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was hard. And I I dealt with it by getting a job. I said, you know, I'm going to I'll work at the deli. So I worked at a deli in East. Where was it? In Windsor, um, you know, Paran. And I was like the girl who shaved the meat, you know, like, you know, the deli meat. Yeah, yeah. You're like, is this thin enough? Is this thin enough? <laughs> but I would, I would always be distracted. I'd be writing lyrics in my notebook while I was supposed to be washing dishes. And then I just turned up to work one day and they were like, yeah, we're not going to rust you on anymore. We don't think you're cut out for this. And I was like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> so that was it. That's the only other job I've ever had. Settle down. You said you, you've had floating around, those verses floating around since you're 14, 15. How many of the other songs, you know, were, were kind of in a rough shape for you already at this stage? Yeah, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the song called The Build Up, but that was uh, the last song of Vows to close the record out. And that would have been, that could have been, yeah, 15, I'd say. I wrote that on guitar. And then, of course, you know, Old Flame, that was a song of vows, and that was very, that was about 18. But a lot of very early songs, I mean, some of the, tra- there's like interludes on vows, like little moments where it goes off into like a little bedroom demo. A lot of those are taken from as early as 14. Yeah. All right. I didn't yeah. know that. That's gorgeous to, you know, yeah. bring that teenage <laughs> feeling back in there. It is nice. I think people connect to that, you know. It's that authenticity of like an artist who genuinely has been doing this since they were a kid. And, you know, just mm. because you're a pop star doesn't mean you throw all that away. Mm. Uh, how about Cameo Lover? Um, that one won the Vander and Young Songwriting um, award the competition ahead of, mind you, Gautier, somebody that I used to know. <laughs> wow, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, um, yeah. No, Cameo Lover is is a, you know it's actually one that I produced significantly myself. I mean, I had help, but I was certainly the the one that kind of pieced that one together. So I think it was a real confidence booster when it did win the songwriting competition because I actually wrote it on guitar. You know, this is unstoppable. You got like it's a cute little guitar song, and then I was learning Pro Tools, and I kind of put a you know the Motown beat to it, and then I got some other various producers to to pitch in on it, and great musicians to play on it. Um, so I think getting that affirmation that you know I I wrote this song that could be validated at that level was was amazing, and um, it, it it did it did signify a departure 
from my producer Francois though that was the first song that we kind of we didn't fully agree on direction um so I started to move away from from working with him you know so, you mm. know all, all with good um will but uh I started to bring on different co-producers because I wanted some different things so that's an interesting song too because it's kind of I think it sounds a bit confused sometimes I listen to it I'm like oh it's like so many different genres but I think that's because I was moving into a different space sonically as well Cameo lover saw Kimbra scoop the Vander and Young songwriting competition in 2011. She won the competition ahead of another global Grammy-crushing hit song that she also had a hand in. Here's Kimbra with a story of her connection with Gautier and how she got involved with somebody that I used to know. I was covering Gautier at, at pubs. Really? Which songs? Uh, Hearts a Mess. Hearts a Mess. <laughs> wow. Favorite song. You can find it on the internet. It's uh, there's a there's a version uh, a video of me playing it at a pub. Anyway, so Francois, you know, when he when Gautier was uh, struggling to find the singer for somebody that I used to know, he put my name for it. Um, and so we met up for coffee, and I was like a little fan girl, you know. And then uh, you know he said, "Well, look, I'd like to try you out for the song. You know, could I come over to your house with my microphone?" So yeah, I've got a little studio in my bedroom. Um, he came over and I tried the song, you know, with no expectations, but he uh, he loved it, you know, he really loved it. And uh, he had some feedback, he had some things he wanted different, and I did that, and and that was really it. That was really it. He walked out of that, that place and I didn't see him again until the video shoot. Wow. Uh, did it take you many takes to do it or it, it sounds like it, it's pretty natural and you know here it is banged it out I think, I think it really was yeah <laughs> we, did a, we did a lot of talking before we tracked so it was very important to him that I didn't sound like a singer he didn't want me to you know I think I sung it down and I was like singing like I guess I sing which is a little bit you know slightly theatrical at times isn't it you know it's like a bit whimsy you know so I was sort of singing it like a singer and he goes mm, no conversational I just want you to say it like you mean it I don't want you to sound like a singer so wow okay I tried it like that and that was the take amazing um how do you sort of view that song now I mean what, what sort of does it evoke in you when when you think about it or when you hear it um you know made such a huge impact oh. for both of you yeah I think I just think what what a blessing to be part of so many people's lives and I won't ever know those people but they know they know what I was going through when I sung that and I'm a piece of their soundtrack to their life I'm I help them get through something I you know we're, we're in a weird way we're connected I mean that's totally. a very huge privilege isn't it it is, but it, as is the concern, and I'm sure, you know, you've considered this as well, you're concerned with something so huge, you know, it, it can be hard to shake that off and move on and, and be, you know, everything else that you want to be as well. Was yeah. that uh, slightly daunting for you? Well, I mean, it's like if I think about it now, if it was happening to me now, I think I would be like, oh, my God, how am I ever going to 
you know, get it rid or not get rid. Who wants to get rid of the song? I mean, that's the thing. It's a fucking great song. So it's not like I'm like embarrassed, you know, like, oh, I've got to get rid of this terrible like collaboration. <laughs> it, like with this awful, embarrassing video. It's like, it's a beautiful video. It's a beautiful song. It's iconic. I would love to be associated. I will be associated with it forever. And that sounds great. Um, but I want to do my own thing as well. And I want to go in different directions. So instead of becoming incredibly overwhelmed and daunted, I sort of had this courage as a kid. And, you know, I still believe I have it, but I just thought, well, let's be more ambitious than ever. The song won two goddamn Grammys. So, and it's a pretty weird song. So if something as weird, and I mean weird because, you know, the song, I mean, the chorus doesn't come in until about two minutes. It's a very strange pop song. So if something as strange as that can connect with the entire, you know, almost the entire world, well, I'm not going to go and make boring music. I'm going to make, I'm going to make the strangest music I can think of. You know, it's like, I just didn't care about being normal. I was like, well, let's be as off the cuff as possible. And, you know, I'm sure that terrified Warner Brothers, but... (laughs) And I wasn't very commercially successful with my second album, so, you know, but, I mean, fuck it, I'm trying to make a legacy, you know, not a quick cash grab. Involvement in the Grammy-conquering hit song with Gautier initiated an incredibly exciting and busy time for Kimbra. This included preparations for a follow-up album, which saw her showcase the many other strings to her bow, as well as stretching her collaborative muscles. As you'll hear her mention, 2014's The Golden Echo included an impressive cast of contributors. We just didn't stop. Like, we were just touring, like, for years. I mean, we did Foster the People all around America, Gautier all around America, Headline Tour all around America, America twice, Europe straight after that. You know, you could go six, seven weeks, never touch down at home. And when I did have home, it was Airbnb, so it wasn't home, you know. <laughs> so it's like, what am I doing? Like, I've got to be living here, um, which, of course, made other things very difficult, like having management in Australia, d- disaster, you know. Mm. So... It meant a lot of other business changes had to happen. But, um, yeah, like living in America was was a daunting idea to me because I found Hollywood very anxiety-inducing. Now, that's where Warner Brothers wanted me to live, of course, but I just I knew I'd go absolutely nuts there. Mm. So I said, let me go on the internet and just look So I at, at other places. So I went on Craigslist and I, uh, I found this kooky woman who had a little suburban house in Silver Lake right by the reservoir in Los Angeles then you walk around the back of the house and there's a little bedroom for another resident there's an outdoor kitchen there's 20 chickens running around free range there's four sheep there's two goats there's one sheep dog um (laughs) there's a there's a Mexican farmer who's just like he's a shepherd he's the shepherd just casually a shepherd and they slaughtered the lambs on Passover. Like it was, it was crazy. The first thing she told me was like, if you need to grow marijuana, you're welcome to. Like it was just like, it was hilarious. I'm like 21 <laughs> um, or 22, you know? 
but it was amazing. And that was where, of course, you know, when I started hanging out with Thundercat, that, that's where we wrote. He'd come over to the farm, we'd hang with the chickens, we'd make some eggs from the eggs from the chickens, and we would we would write music and he'd bring his bass guitar over. That's where Daniel Johns wrote all those songs with me. Daniel, I have photos of Daniel at the farm, yeah. I think soul and R&B were, were areas that you were going to move into, weren't they? So was, was there a, a conscious um, decision? I mean, because you're working with so many different people on that album as yeah. well. Um, and, and did you know like, and have an idea of what you wanted them to bring to it, regardless of their backgrounds in music? Yeah. I mean, to give you the kind of context, I, uh, I was given my own studio or, you know, room in a studio to, to be a producer and make my record, you know, Rich Costi, who was mixing Interpol and the Mars Volta and Diplo and like huge bands and artists. He was in the studio A and he said, you take studio B, do what you want, do what you want. It was a beautiful studio with a live room and Daniel's coming into town, my idol. And I'm saying, come through to the studio. I'm saying, Thundercat, come through. I know we have the farm, but come through to the studio. And I, I'm, I'm engineering them. I'm engineering my favourite acts, I'm, you know. And um, I think that's a game changer, like access, <laughs> opportunity, opportunity. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, I got obsessed with the first impression. What does Thundercat do when he first hears a song? So I, I recorded everyone the moment they got in the room. I started recording. Because I wanted to always get the first, and I never played them the music before they came in. Oh. I didn't play the song. I played it for them on the spot, and I said, play the line now. I don't know where I got this confidence from as a kid. I mean, I'm not confident outside. You know, I, I have a lot of insecurity um, when I'm not in the studio or on stage. But when I'm, on, when I'm in those elements, I'm just... I'm home and I, and I know how to be direct and hopefully kind, you know, because that's important. But I just, yeah, I was very ambitious and, and I'm proud of that, you know, you know. So what were some of your favourite moments from the Golden Echo that you can recall you can tell us about? Yeah, so many. So there's a song called Miracle that is literally me and Daniel Jones and Thundercat making a song, which is just very strange to me, like Silvertair and Snoop Dogg's bass player, like it's just so fucking weird. Um, and I remember just the moment that chorus came into, send me up again cause you're my miracle. And us all looking at each other and we're like, oh my God. <laughs> Golden Echo saw Kimbra flex her ear for sound design and composition, as well as the very intentioned use of each of her chosen collaborators walking through her LA studio doors. The album that followed, Primal Heart, saw her shift focus to more intimate settings and experiences. The record explored human strength, hope and resilience and how to harness these to bring about transformation and change. It's a huge ambition for an artist to synthesise and then execute across a collection of songs. I asked Kimbra if she had a defined vision of what she wanted to say ahead of making Primal Heart. Well, for a start, I never know what I want to say when I start an album. Definitely not. I mean, maybe with the exception of this one, this new album, A Reckoning. Um, apart from the, you know, the other ones, I, I just start. 
and I just see what happens. You know, the Golden Echo is a maximalist album. It's not simple. It's very dense. It's it's very chaotic. It's very it's bombarding at times. Um, so I think with Primal Heart, I wanted to kind of hunt for something more fundamental, essential um, about the human experience. I don't know. That's all I can think of really as I just wanted to be more focused and I always want to be more focused, which is hard because I'm a bit, I'm a bit crazy, you know, but um, aren't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you feel like people had an idea of who you were from your early successes Um, and you needing to be able to express a, a deeper and more authentic version of yourself with, with Primal Heart? Yeah, I think people have an idea of you from your past music and I wanted to, I always want to shake it up, you know? I just think that's that's what my idols do, Prince and David Bowie, and they keep surprising you. So if everyone thinks of me now as like a maximalist, dense, chaotic pop artist, well, now I'm going to make a record... I don't know, like with just a piano ballad and no backing vocals, you know, like version of me, for example. There's a better version of me. Let me just do something totally different now. That's like the fun of being an artist. Why would you want to do the same thing over and over again? Like, I don't get that. From hopeful singer-songwriter to multifaceted musical maverick, Kimbra is an artist who's been unafraid to step out of the perceived norms of music to craft her own brand of off-kilter pop. The J-Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Burke. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening.